From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Oh, Zach, it feels so good. I mean, I this know. is like, this is just, you know, this is, this is a great week. Uh, I'm feeling really positive. feels like a, a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. That's all I'm going to say. Those right. who know, no. Dry January, almost over. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that's, dude, I, yeah, I'm done with that shit. <laughs> but for those of you that aren't, you might be interested in this week's sponsor. Are you aiming to cut back on calories and alcohol, but still want to enjoy a delicious glass of wine? Mind and Body Wines are your perfect solution. These low-calorie, low-alcohol wines are only 90 calories per serving and are vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, and made without added sugar. With Mind and Body, you can sip without sacrifice. Learn more at mindandbodywines.com. Yeah, man, I I, I stopped. I uh, <laughs> There was... There was too much. I had like, uh, I mean, I'm still in moderation, obviously, but uh, this weekend I did not imbibe actually. But then on Sunday night, uh, I was like making a, a meal with Naomi and she was like, are we not having wine? <laughs> like we made like, I made like fresh pasta and like a oh, pasta yeah. sauce I like from the, um, from the Franny's cookbook, high okay. quality cookbook. And uh, yeah. And I was like, you know, yeah, we're drinking wine. And then um, Tuesday night, you know, I like, again, was like, I don't think I'm going to drink. But then Wednesday night, I was like, it's the inauguration. Yeah. I mean, I got to have something. What did you inaugurate yourself with? Oh, just a beer. Mm. Um, but a delicious beer. Just a beer. Yeah, yeah. that's good. It was a delicious beer. Um, and then uh, tonight, actually, I'm meeting up with um, a wine uh, entrepreneur who I really uh, respect a lot mary taylor i don't know if we talked about mary oh, yeah. before we've had mary uh, on the podcast that's right yes so mary and i are getting drinks because she uh used to live lives in brooklyn but just sold her place and is moving to connecticut i was like i'd love to see you before i leave and you know she and i are both stern alums and uh i think her wines are awesome and i think her concept is really cool um i, I really i it's shocking to me that she's the first person to do this i mean she's literally just taking the importer label on the back of the label and putting it on the front of the label. You know what I mean? Like it's, 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 but it's so smart and she's gotten, you know, a lot of great pickups. I know the company's growing a lot. So I'm excited to hear about that. But she was like, do you want to get beers? And I was just like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I "I guess, I guess this is what's happening. Let's go sit outside and have a beer. I haven't had a draft beer in a long time. Uh, So let's sit in the cold cold and do that. So yeah, Yeah. man, for me, dry January, was a nice thing. It was a good week and a half run. I really gave the old college try, but I realized that like for me, a drink or two in, you know, a few days a week is a nice reward. It's a nice breakup. And like, I'm just, you know, I'm healthy. I exercise. I drink within reason. I'm not going to punish myself. So yeah, fair enough, man. I cannot argue with any of the generals or particulars there because I just think for me, it's like, I've just found that I I have a harder time doing the like three or four days a week not drinking. Uh, yeah, I can do one, maybe two a week, but it's just it's you know I mean I hate to be the per- I hate to reiterate this on the podcast seemingly every other week, but like life with kids, man. Like <laughs> I need I need that drink most most weeks, most nights. But uh, January just gonna gonna get through it. Power I mean, more through. than halfway there. So use power you know, through. That, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I got to tell you, you know, it was like I was like very tempted by uh, by the inauguration. And I was like, well, you know what? If I didn't drink four years ago at the last inauguration, and I didn't somehow, I'm not going to drink this time either. So I'll, I'll save my uh, my celebration for for February. 
Uh, I want to make another admission too, uh-huh. which is that uh, a few a few nights earlier this week, on one of the nights I wasn't drinking, uh, we have you know like a, a a type of soda stream, and I was making some soda water, and I was like, hmm, should I put some bitters in this? And then I was like, oh. I can't do it. I can't do it because I can't tell Zach I did it and liked it. So I'm not putting bitters in this. I'm putting lemon. <laughs> Kat Walensky, though, Kat is gone is, is on team team bitters and soda now. So oh, she is. Yeah, she she let me know. I think she posted on uh, on Twitter or something about it. And, I mean, uh, I'll try it at some it, point. It's a. I mean, there's, it's not my drink. I didn't create it. I mean, fuck. It's been a it's been a restaurant staple. But it is really funny because a thing I learned from talking about this, having it on the podcast, and people responding to me about it was, it really is like. The, the breakdown is really stark. Like if you are have worked in a restaurant or you're connected to someone who has, you are like way more likely to have tried bitters and soda, which I guess makes sense because the biggest thing about it is like at restaurants, like you have a – bitters are just there, right? Like every right, bar, exactly. even the shittiest bar imaginable has Angostura bitters. And so and, – and in the shitty bar, they're probably not using it for anything else. So you can probably just load your drink up with it, your soda up with it. And – most people at home, if they have bitters, it's like they think that bitters are something you use two dashes of, which in a lot of cocktails you do, to be fair. But like it's just it was just really interesting to me to get the feedback from from people that I know or that I, you know, that are on social media. Like, yeah, it was it was very skewed towards the restaurant industry, as is maybe shouldn't have surprised me, but did nonetheless. What is your recipe for bitters and sodas? Like how many dashes is it then? Oh man, it's like, I mean, to the point where I've stopped counting. I, I would say it's probably a good <laughs> quarter to a half ounce of bitters so uh, so, so, you, so you're getting that alcohol in there then i mean a, a you're not doing you're not doing dry january i mean it's the equivalent <laughs> of having like a quarter or a half ounce of you know yeah of whiskey or something like yes is there some amount of alcohol there sure i'm also for work occasionally having to taste stuff and spit it out and does no <laughs> alcohol cross my lips of course not but like i'm also not drinking seven bitters and sodas in a sitting i'll drink one every few days it's a treat uh, otherwise, it's just nothing but but soda without the bitters. You know, sometimes sometimes with flavors, uh, because that is the that is how my wife and I get through this month. Is well, she drinks she drinks flavored soda water year round, but for me, it's mostly a January indulgence. Otherwise, I'm drinking other stuff. I love. I mean, I love Spindrift. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Spindrift's my favorite. I, I we that's the treat for me because it's got some fruit juice in it. Uh, and then every now and then, it's uh, most of the rest of the time, it's whatever brand of some combination of the the famous ones and the whatever ones Caitlin orders via Amazon fresh that show up. I don't know if they're proprietary brands that I don't even remember, but they're just in the fridge. I just grab one. I'm, I, are you particular on flavor though? Cause I am very particular on flavor with these. Oh yeah. The, so like for, for me, for Spindrift, the, like the, I'm, I'm grapefruit all the way. I have yet to try the grapefruit. They keep being sold out. The blackberry is, is the one I really like. Uh, I can do the, like the raspberry lime, which we have sometimes. The thing I can't do is not so much with Spindrift, but like I, th- there's like the whole thing about like coconut soda water, and I just can't do it. Like it's it tastes weird to me. It's like oily, and I don't dig it. Ugh, I don't like. My coconut. wife loves them, so they're all her. But she likes the coconut flavored like sparkling waters. Yeah, and I just I can't I can't get behind it. Like I like most of them, but but coconut just it's I don't know miss me with that. I like coconut water. I like coconut flavored things generally, but but the coconut sparkling water just it's like I, I don't, yeah, it's a texture thing or a perceived texture thing or something. I'm not sure. Mm, that's crazy, man. So yes, today we're what we're talking about minimum wage, right? That's right. 
you want to lead us off? I do, because I think, you know, we were talking a little bit about the inauguration and and one of the many things that may change going forward under the Biden administration and a Democratic controlled House and Senate is potentially a pretty fundamental change to minimum wage laws in this country. I mean, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour at the federal level and hasn't gone up for over 20 years, I believe. And I mean, I don't want to get into a whole long conversation about why that is, um, other than that it's fucking ridiculous that the minimum wage has not gone up in that amount of time. And obviously, there are lots and lots of states and localities that have higher minimum wages. I live in one of them. Um, you do too. And um, But at, at the same time, raising the federal minimum wage obviously has a big impact because it's the floor for anything. And specifically, this proposal would also get rid of the idea of a tipped minimum wage, meaning in places like New York and a number of other states, although not here in Washington, you can pay someone less than minimum wage at an hourly rate if they are making enough money in tips to get to that level or above. And there's been a lot of outcry from the restaurant industry, from um, at least certain parts of it that, you know, this kind of proposal would, you know, greatly harm restaurants, mm-hmm. small operators, et cetera, and including like the National Restaurant Association. And I-, I will let you give your thoughts, but I will say very concisely at the moment that to me, that is total bullshit. And it is a particularly kind of heinous and pernicious lie that the restaurant industry has told for a very long time. And I'm happy to explain why in a moment, but but I want to give you uh, a chance to talk because you know i have my perspective i was paid an hourly wage for the majority of my life so i have strong feelings about it as someone who made essentially minimum wage for quite a number of years yeah i mean so i think it's criminal that the minimum wage has been what it's been so i completely agree with you um i want to talk about this on the like sort of the basis of just being a business owner right um like i think what is lacking I'm not saying that my path was the path for everyone. I'm not saying that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think that there has been a a sort of thesis over the last like 10 to 15 years coming out of Silicon Valley, coming out of a lot of other places that like education doesn't matter um, and that entrepreneurs should be able to do whatever they want and, you know, should just start, everyone should just start businesses. And I worked at a business that went under. Um, it wasn't mine, but it was a record label that I that I loved dearly. And you know, I was there when it went bankrupt. Um, and so for me, I really wanted to understand, you know, how you start a business. So I went back to business school, right? And I learned about accounting, and I learned about, you know, business plans and P and Ls and budgeting. And what I also learned is, if you can't afford the, if the business can't make money, you shouldn't start the business. And I think that there is this idea that like, you know, we sh- anyone should be able to have a business with all of this like gig economy. I'm fucking sick of the gig economy. It's not sustainable. It doesn't, it doesn't take care of humans. You know, the fact that we are valuing, you know, these, I mean, have you looked at fucking DoorDash's stock price recently? Oh my it's, God. I don't, it, <laughs> it's I don't insane. It's yeah. fucking insane. I'm, I'm just saying. And the yeah. people who are running DoorDash, who are actually doing the deliveries, are making nothing. And the restaurants are making money. Nothing. This is unsustainable. Yeah. And this is the same. This is my soapbox to get to restaurants, which is there's a lot of these people who have models that are sustainable and others that don't. And when you sit down and you decide you want to open a restaurant, 
you've got to look at the model and say, can we afford to pay people a living wage with the what we want, the food we want to sell, and the prices we want to charge, and all those things? And if we can't, then maybe we can't have a restaurant, you know, or maybe the this this restaurant model doesn't work for this place, you know. I, I just I don't know how else you do it. Like you, we are going to have to raise the minimum wage in this country. It, 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 we haven't raised it in decades. It needs to catch up with the cost of living. I mean, people haven't had a pay raise and everything else is going up. Rent is going up. Gas is going up. So this has to happen. And yeah, I think it's bullshit. And it's, it's one of these things where it's become this sort of like uh, narrative that we're all telling that's being reinforced by these organizations, as you mentioned. And look, again, I've only ever worked, as we talk about in this podcast, a lot as a cater waiter. I've never been in a restaurant. Um, I have lots of friends who are restaurateurs. I understand it's a really hard business. Um, I do not uh, you know, want to be in their position. I think it's it's a anyone who opens a restaurant, I think is crazy. Uh, I love I love eating at them, but I think it's crazy, right? Because it's so hard. It's so hard to make a living, and um, but yet some people really do it to great success. To yeah. great success, and you know, a lot of people who do it to great success too that I've found have really happy employees, and yeah. usually it's because those employees are taken care of. And I think if it's an unfortunate that we have to force, we're gonna have to force the rest of the country to take care of their employees. But I think it's the only way we are going to ultimately have a successful restaurant industry and a healthy restaurant industry, you know, especially coming out of COVID. But again, I've never worked in a restaurant. So I, I'm curious, you know, some stuff that I'm saying, is this resonating, Zach? I mean, like, is am I crazy to say, well, look, if you can't afford this person, then then you can't have a restaurant? Like, is that just me being mean old, like, business person <laughs> being like, well, look, the numbers don't work, so go fuck yourself. Because that's kind of how I feel. Like, you got to look at the numbers. If the numbers don't work, the numbers don't work. But, you know, other people would say that's not fair. Yeah, well, I would say a couple things. One is I've never owned a restaurant myself, so I so I will speak at this, you know, from my perspective as someone who's worked at a variety of different levels throughout restaurants and been pretty involved in opening them and understanding some of how they work. But it's never been my money on the line. It's never been my name on the you know on the business license, etc. So so take that you know caveat. I don't think you're wrong at all, and I think that actually one of the biggest issues we had in the restaurant industry pre-COVID was every last person who had a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of, you know, maybe some acclaim or at least a little bit of uh, attention and some backing could open a restaurant. And many of them were just never going to succeed. I mean, I have been to, I have, you know, been offered jobs at, I have, uh, you know, been, in, you know, dined at so many restaurant concepts that were just so clearly not thought out by someone who understood anything about how a business is profitable, you know, by people who maybe had great, you know, really, really great food, great bar programs, great wine programs, uh, you know, all kinds of things. But in the end, what they were doing was not going to make money. And, and then as it turns out, you know, if you, if either it's you, just you or your family, or you have investors somewhere down the road, you have to make money and, you know, you might have a longer or a shorter runway depending on how you're fine, you know, you're financing things, but, but it is not infinite. And, and as you said, no business concept is entitled to be profitable just because you like it. And one of the most important things to recognize here is that one of the reasons why, Tip, the tip economy um, and the and sort of tipping as a function in the American restaurant industry has persisted as long as it has, is it served a very useful function for 
restaurant owners, which is they didn't have to pay their front of the house staff very much. And that meant they didn't have to pay payroll taxes on what those people were making. The, the, that is a huge reason why tip culture has persisted as long as it has, because let's say, you know, I'm not going to, we're not gonna have a whole conversation about tipping, I don't think, but, but tipping is a part of this whole issue, right? It, it is cutting out the restaurant and the restaurant owner and the restaurant ownership from compensation for a big chunk of their workforce, which is mm-hmm. frankly, fucking insane. I mean, again, it's not how any other kind of business works. You know, I don't go to the grocery store and decide that, you know, I don't think the person at the seafood counter did a good enough job picking out my piece of salmon. So I'm not going to tip them and they don't make money. Like that is an insane business concept. Like the owner or operator of any business should want to have control over their employees wages so that they can, you know, compensate them adequately and ensure that the, the, the person who's working for them's goals are aligned with their own. And, and, and so, you know, there's this whole long sorted history of restaurants and restaurateurs underpaying people, you know, underpaying undocumented workers, threatening them to, you know, report them to, you know, to ICE or um, INS before that, uh, you know, there's just so many things that go on when, People are not paid a living wage, you know, no health care, people working sick. I mean, think about how crazy that sounds now to us in this COVID landscape that I and everyone I worked with would show up to work when by any standards of the health department, we should have stayed home. But because there's no sick pay in most places, there's that's changed in some places, including in Seattle, there's no you know, vacation time, there's no policy that allows for someone who should not be working for whatever reason, you know, health or otherwise, to stay home. Someone who's just had a kid, you know, there's no paid parental leave, all these things, you know, unless a a local or state or, you know, government has passed these laws, none of that is mandated at a federal level. And, and, and very few, some, but very few restaurateurs will offer that as a benefit just on their, you know, their own goodwill. And, Again, it just creates a, a a persistent issue within the industry of people being absolutely on the brink of financial ruin yep. for things that should not ruin anyone. You know, not just I'm not talking about you know horrific injury or you know you know terminal illness or or I should say potentially you know life threatening illness or things like that. Right, like that shouldn't ruin anyone either. But those are at least huge problems that are hard to anticipate. But I'm talking about someone, you know, breaking their their arm, you know, a four to six week injury, less than that, really, if you're not doing something really, really intense. And I've known people who were like, basically begging their coworkers to give them money, because they had nothing saved because their job barely allowed them to pay for the cost of their apartment in Seattle or in San Francisco mm-hmm. or in New York or whatever, right? Like we want restaurants in these cities. The people who work in jobs that are still employed right now, who are sitting at their computers who, listening to this, you know, you want restaurants in your city. You want be able to order food via these horrific parasitic apps yep. delivered to your door or whenever. But, but the people who make that happen cannot afford to live not just in the city. In many cases, they can't even afford to live within an hour. I mean, I was stunned by the end of, uh, you know, the the by 2020, how many people I worked with in Seattle who lived an hour, an hour and a half commute away, each way. And these are people who are commuting, you know, home late at night. Some of them are people who might not be safe commuting late at night, you know, on public transit, potentially. Like, there's just so many issues. And it all stems to the fact that in some way, we societally have viewed restaurant work and similar service sector work as being less than. And that is a fundamental issue that 
is not fixed by a raise in the minimum wage, but in some sense it is because you know you look at uh, God help me, Adam. You know it's a curse of mine that I look at Twitter too much. Yeah, but you, you do. Look at all the people responding, you know, all the people tweeting things like, "Well, you know, why should I pay? You know, uh, why should I pay?" Why should you know someone who's washing dishes or someone who's flipping burgers make fifteen dollars an hour? As if doing those things is somehow, you know, any less noble a pursuit than whatever the fuck that person is doing with their free time, you know, posting on Twitter probably. And and again, I just you know, I, I just find it to be, you know, we want these things in our in our communities, whether they're cities, towns, whatever. We want restaurants. We want the things that that they offer to us. That means we have to treat the work that makes them possible as being worthy of a living wage. I mean, look, I got a response to someone who tweets, you know, why should I pay someone $50 an hour? It's called, you know, rising prices for everyone. Mm -hmm. So your price has got to rise too, bro, because I'm assuming it was a bro who tweeted it. Um, you, You may be making more money in your job, right? So this person needs to too because- the prices across the country are going up and they've been going yeah. up. That's what happens, right? Yeah. I mean, my grandfather used to be able to buy a, you know, a piece of candy for a, a, a penny that doesn't exist anymore. You know, like that's, that's what happens. We make, you know, his salary was also a lot lower because yeah. he could buy a piece of candy for a penny, you know, and then my mom was able to buy a piece of candy for, I don't know, 10 cents, right? That's it's, that's how economics work. And we've been stuck in a situation where, a large portion of this country has not gotten the pay raise they need while other people have. And don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast who are professionals who also haven't gotten the pay raise. And I understand that. And they're, you know, that's why people are, are moving from cities to other places um, because, you know, they can lower cost of living, all that stuff. And it's unfortunate that certain cities, the cost of living has become astronomical like New York, like Seattle, like San Francisco. Um, but, you know, the the least we can do is is raise the minimum wage across the country to something that is livable in a majority of places and probably still will not be in some. In New York, 15 is not going to be enough. No. Right? It's not. But it's the least we can do. And, you know, it makes up for bad nights. You know, it makes up for less customers. And look, again, the restaurateur will then have to do a true economic model. And really look at their PLs to decide, okay, how many employees can I have? What model works? And, and this is why, you know, we talked about this a lot. Like, how much do I need a song compared to just a server? Or, you know, do I need, should I be moving to more of a counter service model? Are people more okay with that? It looks like we're moving to, you know, everyone loves fast casual. Would they like, you know, casual dine-in? Does, does that mean, you know, you walk in? Like we talked about with Papina before, you eat at the counter, you know, you order the counter and you sit in the backyard. You have an amazing meal. And Habin only has to pay a few servers. Yeah. Right? That's potentially, you know, an option that you can look at. I think, you know, actually, like, this will call, this will create a lot more creativity in the restaurant world, right? Because people will have to think about, okay, so what are people willing to pay for? What are people willing to pay for, right? Yeah. Are you willing to pay for, you know, a, a $25 burger that's a basic burger that has a slab of cheese over it and – or sorry, a $30 burger even, let's say – and that you could easily make it home in the backyard or, you know, on your, on your stovetop. So then if you go out, are you looking for a burger that really is like special in some way, right? It has, 
a special proprietary meat blend, or I don't know, you baked the buns in house, or it's on a bun that you wouldn't think of, or it has a, a you know, more of a gourmet cheese, or I don't fucking know. Right. Yeah. Like, so that you're the, you can pay, you can charge $35. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, I think what, what restaurants are going to have to think about. And what does it feel like when you're there? Does it feel really fun? And you know, were the drinks fun? And is it a great atmosphere? And all those things are things that people will have to start thinking about once the minimum wage is raised. But you know, the, the pushback against it to me is really cruel. Yeah. Is really sure. cruel because it's basically saying I get, I get to have a business that I want because I either, you know, I'm willing to take the financial risk of taking out the loan or I know someone who can loan me to start the business, whatever, but I don't have to pay people, you know, a, you know, a, a $15 minimum wage. I shouldn't have to do that. That to me is like, then maybe you shouldn't start a, a business. Yeah. And I think it's also, to be fair, it's not all on the side of the people who are operating these businesses. There is, you know, definitely a segment of the restaurant going public that is, I would say, averse, if not outright antagonistic towards the idea of paying more for anything. And even when res when menu prices would go up at restaurants I worked at, because cost of everything has gone up, not just the cost of rent, but the cost of the, yep. the produce, the cost of meats, the cost of everything has gone up um, and prices would have to go up even to sustain what was maybe not a perfectly healthy business model, uh, let alone one that was actually somewhat profitable. And people would complain. And, you know, most people understood this is the deal. And it's not like the prices were hidden. But, you know, every time, uh, some for at least some amount of time, people would complain and say, oh, well, you know, why are, you know, why is this steak this price when, you know, six months ago it was this price, or I can get it cheaper at my grocery store, you know, whatever. And I'm not going to have a whole, we're not going to have a whole conversation about the how things are priced in restaurants. Again, that's another topic, maybe some other day. But I will say that part of it is, as, as those of you listening who are not part of the restaurant industry, never have been, never will be, but are diners or would like to be diners in the future. The reality is that there are exactly two ways this can go. One is that we can uh, do things like raise the minimum wage and that comes with, yes, somewhat increased pricing in some places. I mean, again, in a $15 minimum wage in Seattle wouldn't make a difference. The minimum wage is already over that here. So it's not as if that's going to make an impact here. It's going to make an impact in some parts of the country for sure, in some places where that might actually be a living wage. But, but it will cause all wages to go up, at least to some extent. And that means you're going to pay a little more. It's just the reality of it. Like Americans are still, even after the growth of the restaurant industry, still spend a lot less of their disposable income on food than many other developed nations. And that's just the reality. Like food's expensive. You know, it's it's literally difficult to produce. You know, a cow is not something you just order on Amazon. And so that's one path. The other path, and again, I haven't heard a lot of talk about this. I mean, I have, but not from anyone who's in actual power is we look at a model that's a little bit more like what is the case in a lot of European nations where food costs are not all that high, but that's because the restaurant industry is subsidized by the federal government, by their by their national governments. They recognize that in the same way that we consider lots of other industries or lots of other aspects of our lives to be important and not necessarily in need of being completely connected to profitability, like the arts, like right. public transportation, like that restaurants and food service and those kinds of things are are something that we 
don't want to be solely driven by profitability. And as a result, we as a society broadly say, hey, you know what? There are lots of ways in which the government could subsidize the cost of doing business as a restaurant, right? Could be lower rents for restaurants than for other comparable business uses. There could be uh, subsidies on foods, beverages, things like that, you know, things that would keep prices down for the end consumer at a at a holistic level. And I personally think that is a better approach. Now, do I think it is likely to be something that is enacted by the current government? Probably not. But it's something to, t- to bear in mind that, that either cost can be borne by the people who will be dining out. And there's a segment of the people of people who think, I don't want my tax money essentially to go to something that I don't use. You people suck, but you're out there. Right. Or we can say we consider food to be an, an access to food in, in, in all the various ways. And, and obviously, you know, access to food for people who don't have food is the most important thing. But I would I would say that the ability to go have a meal made for you by someone else in a relatively non-laborious and not, you know, incredibly expensive fashion is a unquestionable public good. And if it is, we have to treat it as such and we have to subsidize it. That's just the reality. That's how things work in a society. I agree, man. I, you know, I think it's just, it's such a, all of this is just something where I think, you know, the, the people who are at all critical of this decision need to just sit down, take a look in the mirror and think about why. Um, because I think to the majority of us, I mean, I've gotten pretty passionate about it. You've gotten pretty passionate about it. It, at this point, is just a no brainer. Um, and there's not a lot else to say about it. Right. And I think if you're someone who's listening to the podcast and you're on the fence, I would encourage you to think about why you don't think people deserve to make at least $15 an hour. Right. What, why, why don't they deserve that? And what does that say about you that you feel that way? Um, because and if the answer is because I barely make more than that, then you also should make more money. I like agree. That is that is the thing here, right? It is not. No one is saying, or hopefully, no one is saying that fifty dollars minimum wage applies to everyone. It's not just to restaurant workers, obviously. And yes, costs will go up some. But the whole point here, I mean, one of the conversations we are having in this country is there is an unfathomable and frankly, unconscionable amount of wealth concentrated in the hands of relatively few people. And that is not something that any society throughout human history has been able to sustain for long because the rest of us don't fucking like it. And, you know, you can get riled up about someone who works at a fast food restaurant making almost as much money as you, or you can go ask your boss why you don't make more money. And especially if they are someone who, or their or your business is doing real well, uh, and there are lots of them out there right now, to me, that's the question we all have to be asking. I mean, I don't mean to make this overtly political exactly. It's hard to avoid with a topic yeah. like this. But like, but fun- fundamentally, if if someone making $15 an hour threatens your own sense of self-worth from your salary or your hourly rate, you don't make enough money either. Look, this is the first generation uh, in history where the kids are going to make less than their parents, right? The, the, the kids in the work right now are going to make less than their parents. Yeah. That is insane. Um, that has not been the story of America. Uh, that hasn't been the story of the world. And, and that's what we're looking at right now. During the pandemic, the top 5% of the population made more money than they have made in the past, right? They've done very yeah. well. The stock, th- there's, there, there, needs to, there needs to be an evening out here. I'm not calling for, right, like uh, co- socialism, communism, whatever. I'm just calling for equity. 
Um, yeah. You know, I'm calling for, you know, some, some, some equity here, which means that also that's a population that eats out the most, right? Like they can afford to pay a little bit more on the menu so that people can make $15 an hour. And I, I think, you know, that's all there is to say, right? There's, there's a way that we can start to try to make everyone pay their fair share. Um, you know, there's other, there's taxes things that we talked about. We don't have to get into this here because that's not that, that this podcast, as you said, Zach, but you know, the, the least we can do is as lovers of food and beverage advocate for people being paid at least $15 an hour, full stop, full stop. Sure. Uh, all right, man. I will see you back next week. If you guys have thoughts about the podcast, as always, hit us up at podcast at We love to hear your thoughts. Uh, we got a great listener email earlier this week that's, that's actually going to turn into a, a topic for another show about, you know, whether sort of on the same topic, sommeliers and bartenders should should think about moving from cities to smaller towns and looking at opportunities there, starting their own thing, which is a, a topic Zach and I are really excited about. That'll, that'll be coming either next week or in the weeks prior. Uh, but if you have any ideas, you know, always shoot us uh, an email. We love to hear from you guys and we love to, you know, hear your feedback, not only on this show, uh, you know, but also on, you know, things you want to hear. So again, podcast at vinepair.com. Uh, and Zach, man, uh, next week will you be drinking? No, so we dry January. <laughs> well, I think when I'm recording, yes, I will still be sober. By the time everyone hears it, I will have had a drink then. Enjoy your bitters and soda, man. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again. Are you aiming to cut back on calories and alcohol, but still want to enjoy a delicious glass of wine? Mind and Body Wines are your perfect solution. These low-calorie, low-alcohol wines are only 90 calories per serving and are vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, and made without added sugar. With Mind and Body, you can sip without sacrifice. Learn more at mindandbodywines.com.